Hello everyone and welcome to episode 15-15 of the FFS show, uh, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by the ferret. I am your host, as usual, Ali Bryan, uh, fact-checker and pedant-in-chief at the ferret, and joining me for the third time running, my regular co-host, Sam Gonsalves. How are you doing, Sam? Hello, I'm good. We were just talking about this, but I am melting. We are in a big heat wave right now. And in order to record the podcast, we have to close all the windows and doors. Yep. So I am boiling right now. Yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, the Scotland's weird, probably global warming affected uh, <laughs> yeah. weather situation at the moment is bizarre. It was absolutely boiling yesterday and then rained almost all day today, but it's I still know. incredibly hot. So weird, but you know, this just goes to show how much sacrifice we put into these podcasts. And yeah, exactly. for you, <laughs> for you, boil. the listener, we, we toil and boil for you. <laughs> oh my God, I'm gonna. That's the next tweet. The next, Let's do the next a tweet. tweet. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Toiling and boiling. On this podcast, we are looking at a serious fact check from a non-serious claimant. Would you say? Hmm. Yes, yeah. Some listeners might think they're very serious, some some kind of hardcore fans, but possibly, yeah. Their claims are not serious for sure. No. Well, the the sub the subject of the fact check is long COVID, but the people who made the claim are right said Fred. So as um somebody who um I don't know how long you've been in the UK, Sam? I've been for just over ten years. So what was what's your knowledge or exposure to the right said Fred phenomenon? Well, of course, I think like with everyone, I'm too sexy. Their single from the '90s yep. was huge in Brazil, where I'm from, right. as well as probably all over the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I was aware of the song, but I did not realize that it was just two dudes from the <laughs> UK. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> a weird out. one, isn't it? Because I think that they probably have incredible global reach, despite not really being taken seriously uh, anywhere. Yeah, and I mean, they are like, people recognize the name, you know? Um, Yeah, exactly. They've got some clout. And we also have an interview with media freedom expert and journalist protection expert, Nick Williams, who is also a very esteemed Ferret board member. We spoke about the intersection between misinformation, media freedom, and attacks on journalists. So this started with their Twitter account. Right, said Fred's, yeah. Retweeting something from Sky News. What, what what did they retweet? There was a report around COVID and they were trying to make mm. a point from it. So tell me a little bit about what they were retweeting and what point they were trying to make. I think first it's worth mentioning or noting the kind of background to Right, said Fred's <laughs> connection with COVID. <laughs> Okay. It's the sort of sentence that you never think you're going to say. No, no. (laughs) Anyway, they have um, a history, or whoever runs their Twitter account, one of them, uh, has a history of tweeting out anti-vaccine and unproven COVID treatments. So they have a bit of a history of this. I see. But they were quote tweeting a tweet from Sky News who were reporting on a study uh, which said that adults who are fully vaccinated are 47% less likely to have long covid should they contract COVID-19. Okay. This is from a study that was published in The Lancet. Their comment on that was, so 
53% more likely. That's not very impressive. Right. Yeah, sigh. (laughs) Intake of breath. (laughs) So, okay. I want to get into percentages in a little mm. bit <laughs> and talking about what they meant there, but, but they were, they actually just clearly jumped into the, onto the single tweet and then didn't, yeah. didn't really read the report or what the news I don't know was if about. They read the report, but it doesn't seem like it. Can you tell me what the report actually said? What, what was it about and what did it say? Yeah. So it, as I said before, it's a report that was published in the Lancet. I think the people behind it were from King's College. They basically looked at data from an app, which is called the UK Zoe COVID Study app, which right. is where people put in their um, their symptoms and how long it took their, their, uh, when they get COVID. And basically, it's, it's a sort of self-reporting app, which enables scientists to work out how much COVID's about, how, what sort of impact okay. it's having, what the symptoms are. Yeah. It's kind of tracking all the sort of various things around COVID. Sure. This uh, study found that the odds of having symptoms for 28 days or more after infection which is the kind of how they start the cutoff for long covid was yeah. approximately halved if you'd had two vaccine doses so that's what sky news were reporting saying 47 percent of people who are double jabbed are less likely to get long-term symptoms so so it seems like they might have misinterpreted the report um mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about their tweet and the the fundamental misunderstanding of the of the report and the misunderstanding of how percentages actually work. What they seem to have uh, confused by, because the report says that adults who are fully vaccinated are 47% less likely to have long COVID. They thought, well, if basically 47% is one percentage, then what rounds up to 100 is 53. Right. So if 47% are less, they assume that 53% must be more. Right. But 47% in this context, the 47% has no connection to 53. Uh-huh. It just yeah. means that the people out of, of groups of people, if one group of people who are not fully vaccinated and one yeah. group of people are fully vaccinated, of those people, the group who are fully vaccinated have 47% yeah. less likelihood to get right. long COVID symptoms than the, fully, the non-fully vaccinated group. That's the comparison yes. they're making. Yeah, so it's yeah, a fairly yeah. sort of straightforward misunderstanding of percentages, I'm afraid. Sure. But it sort of speaks to a more serious issue around misinformation and sort of people willfully or accidentally misinterpreting uh, statistics and percentages and things that are being released and being published around COVID. Yeah. And there's something about how quickly, especially with a big account like this one, that basic misinformation or or misunderstanding of the report can then amplify into lots of people taking that as fact yeah right? well i think it seems i think on uh and a lot of people were sort of slagging them off for it it seems like a sort of yeah. fa- fairly basic rudimentary error of fact which it is but sure it speaks to uh, an issue which has happened throughout covid which is that mm. the, even these sort of mundane uh seemingly obvious mistakes say it gets taken out of context it then gets put onto anti-vaccine groups it gets taken by uh, campaigners, you know, elsewhere in the in the world, or you know, you see what yeah. I mean. There's a sort of snowballing effect of these little yeah. bits of misinformation that can be cut out of context, and has happened throughout COVID. I mean, we right. can go back through it during the the first few months of COVID. We spent our wholesale entire time just fact checking misinformation around um, the virus itself, and right. stuff that was clearly satirical was getting, or clearly you know, a joke or whatever was getting sure. taken out of context. 
and really? then retweeted, re-put into, put into different messages, social media messages, etc. And right, people right. were thinking it was real. I mean, a good example of that would be we got sent from a number of different people sent us pictures which said that Vladimir Putin had released lions in the streets to enforce lockdown. I saw that, yeah. It was just a picture that somebody had mocked up for a laugh. But in a uh-huh. situation where everyone's a bit scared, a bit confused, there's a lot of rolling news and a lot of things, then some people are thinking, oh, is this true? You know, the world's in a really unusual place anyway, so they might think that anything is possible, essentially. Right, right. Just to yeah. be clear, the well, lions thing was not true. It was not true, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that is really interesting. So I, I can guess what the verdict is, but... Mm. What what ultimately uh, was the assessment of this claim by Wright said Fred? Our verdict on this claim about a significant viral illness that caused pandemic claimed by Wright said Fred is that we found it to be FFS, which is our lowest verdict, meaning for facts sake. Tell me a little bit about that verdict. When, when do you use it? What does it mean? How does it compare? Because we also have mostly false and false and then ffs so so how does it differ from from those other um um, verdicts that's a good question i think we put ffs into our verdict scale um which our verdict scale has uh seven points so true mostly true half true mostly false false ffs and then there's a separate one called unsupported okay um they all have slightly different meanings. Obviously, as we said many times before, our our um like there are the verdicts on our claim are just one part to give you an indication of what's in within the claim. You know, you can disagree with us, you can look, you know, all of our sources are in there and all of our workings are in there. So if you disagree or you want to look at it yourself, you can. But yeah. false on, on our on our verdict scale is the claim is incorrect, not accurate. So Okay. That can be somebody getting their statistics incorrect. It can be someone saying something happened that didn't happen. But FFS is reserved for baseless, ridiculous, or logically impossible claims. Okay. So the reason this is an FFS is because it is based on such a rudimentary misunderstanding of percentages right. that it's plucked from absolutely nowhere. Before we finish the segment, mm. I have a test for you. Um, oh, good. I, I this time I'm holding the cards here and you have to guess something um, this song I'm Too Sexy from Right Said Fred came out in 1991 can yeah. you name three other songs on the top 10 charts of July 1991 when I'm Too Sexy came out I'm Too Sexy was number two it only got up to number two it didn't get up to number one can you name three other songs on the top 10 July 1991 yeah good question <laughs> <laughs> um let me think do i have to give you the can i just give you bands do i have to give you the names you can give me bands. impossible you can, you can give me bands yeah, yeah yeah uh madonna nope oh god how many how many <laughs> options do i have how long is this podcast gonna last <laughs> 25 minutes of me just guessing you got um, three, three chances to at least one give me one one person or band that might be on here um 1991 let me think mm. can you give me a clue yes there's okay. Number nine is an all-time, very well-known rock anthem that came out that year. A rock anthem that came out that year. Yeah, it's one of those songs that, like, if you're putting the pantheon of, like, big rock hits, that's one of them. There's all, just, if you, uh, there's another song that yeah. was from a movie okay. that was really famous, and there's a song that <laughs> from... The singers are two characters from a sitcom 
that launched a music career. Oh, this is a good, this is a really good question. Let's just stack the podcast off and just do this from now on. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to go, is, is, is Whitney Houston one of them? No, no. <sighs> okay. Uh, what was but the other almost, movie? it's also a Kevin Costner movie. Brian Adams. Yeah, number one, baby. Everything oh. I do, I do it for yeah. you. Oh, I should have known because that was number one for about 200 weeks or something as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that um, was on top of I'm Too Sexy and it didn't, it didn't, I'm Too Sexy did not topple it. Wow. Fair enough. And then the, the two sitcom characters who had a, a music career, I yeah. can only think this may, 1991. I can only think, I can only think of Will Smith and the Jazzy Jeff. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Summertime. Let's go. Oh. Great Good stuff. <laughs> well, I, feel, I feel so alive. <laughs> now it's time for my interview with Nick Williams, Ferret board member and media freedom expert. So, Nick, how do governments use misinformation, disinformation to undermine and attack journalists? I always think of it as two, two sort of ways, two, I would say, two of the most dominant ways, is one is to basically signpost everything that a journalist or an outlet puts out as misinformation or disinformation mm-hmm. or fake news. Um, so whatever they're doing, whether it's critical reporting, yeah. um, investigations into corruption, or even, even, you know, some very, what would seem to be sort of lighter topics if that goes against you know the dominant narrative or if it attacks their reputation in in a way that falls short of say like defamation they will mm-hmm. then write off their journalism as 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 disinformation and you see that very commonly you see that in healthy democracies you see that in in authoritarian regimes as well yeah um or you also have a thing where <clears throat> the state itself will just propagate so much disinformation misinformation misinformation becomes possible for the journalists to be able to actually counter it um and that that makes the journalists role more onerous but also more necessary um but also then puts the pressure on the journalists to be able to do that instead of where the owner should be which is state apparatus not themselves propagating misinformation and disinformation do you think covid has escalated these threats and do you reckon the journalists are now more in danger of being branded as fo- fake news or false, giving false information, either being the victim of conspiracies by their connection to the state or also, on the flip side, being accused of misinformation by the state? I would say so as well. But also, I mean, in terms of these issues, COVID's come at the worst time. It's come at a time where, like, really... Yeah really like trust in institutions whether either through either trust in the government government institutions or trust in conventional media is at an all-time low yeah i um, except for i mean trust in local journalism is still relatively high um but it's coming at this time where there's lots of questions around this you know and and there's lots of the sort of the fraying of the edge of this sort of assumed norm of how how civic discourse is meant to take place how it should take place yeah. what are the challenges to it etc cetera, etc cetera. it's come at, it's already that was already that wasn't created by covid but covid's come at a time where this is the case so it, covid's come in it requires you know for example epidemiology is incredibly complicated i mean i don't know anything about it yeah um and so when you know we have to 
because we're not all scientists, there is a certain level where we are. We maybe have to take some stuff on faith. We have to take some stuff on knowing who's who's giving us this information. Um, yeah. With that comes a lot of trust as well. It also comes when there is complex science. It also becomes very easy for people to misrepresent it for either benignly and just um, you know as a mistake, or mm-hmm. as part of a a concerted campaign to further division, further discrediting yeah. the state institutions. Um, and so, yeah, you see, you see, um, you see journalists are sort of stuck in the middle of that. It's also, there has also been an increased need of robust factual yeah. um, scrutiny through the media. You obviously have worked for a fair while in protection of journalists and, you know, media freedom. And I find in the UK, and I wonder if you found this in general as well, that drumming up sympathy for journalism as a profession can be quite difficult. <laughs> you know, in the UK, we've got the legacy of phone hacking scandal. We've got various other excesses of the tabloid press um, and not just the tabloid press. So I wonder if areas of where this is, where media freedom is under attack that people might not know about or that you might be able to bring some attention to. I mean, you know, this is this is an issue that we're seeing. It's... Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, yeah. Europe, you know, for example, Europe is is the safest inhabited continent for journalists, but right. it's still. I would say it's one of them, yeah. Um, but it's still incredibly dangerous, and you know there are, you know, I mean, perfect case case in point. So Daphne Caruana Galizia was murdered over three years ago, or nearly nearly four years ago, actually. Um, in Malta. Uh, Malta, she, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there was a car bomb. Someone planted a car bomb on, on her car and it blew up um, in, um, yeah, 2017. And, um, you know, this this did make a lot of international press. It, it was a huge story and, it, and it's still going on. It's still, you know, the, the criminal cases are still going on. Yeah. Um, the public inquiry finished um, earlier this year. You know, and that did sort of, People did sort of realize that shit. This is this is big. This is a significant issue, and you know, international governments really um, started to pay attention, and European Parliament, European Commission, you know. But yeah. but we we shouldn't read these things as sort of happening out of nowhere. Like mm. Daphne, you know, she had years, nearly decades, I think, of um, abuse aimed at her from people in in power. So people yeah. in the prime minister's office, people in governments, in in business, um, for years and years and years and years, this was um, a litany of defamation threats against her. I think at one point there are about sixty cases directed at her um, yeah. for her investigative reporting, um, online harassment, online abuse, online threats against her. At one point, ha- access to her bank account got frozen. Um, you know. And, you know, there's there was even attacks on her home as well. This never made the same level of visibility. Um, yeah. So generally when we see the sort of most severe threats against journalists, which are murders or, or attempted murders, there's so yeah. much stuff like that happens to lead up, lead up on that. They seldom come out of nowhere and there's, there's always a spectrum. And also when you have an, a media environment that's been chipped away that has, as you mentioned in your question, that has sort of devalued threats against journalism or, or they downplay yeah. it. That makes it easier for those who, who have a malicious intent to actually take the next step to, to actually take physical 
actions against journalists. So this is something we need to we need to look at. Um, and again, as I said before, this is not a case of this doesn't just happen in in weak democracies or fragile democracies no. or new democracies. This happens in um, in in sort of robust. Um, multi-pluralist uh, democracies. It's difficult to have this conversation without mentioning Trump um, mm. because of the obviously massive polarizing impact he had on sort of turning people against the media in the US. Um, it's fair to say that there was already a significant amount of media polarization in the US. Yeah, yeah. But what influence do you reckon he has had and that given his position of power, the sort of brazen nature of, I mean, we saw in his rallies him getting people to turn around to shout abuse out the media um you saw people you know camera people journalists etc getting abused at his rallies and you're even seeing reference to the attack on capital building uh which was inspired by his rally you're seeing that starting to play out in brazil yeah <laughs> there being sort of direct links of inspiration between bolsonaro's stoking up of those similar tensions and bolsonaro is more terrifying because he's already fetishized the military um uh hunter yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. so none of these things come out of a clear blue sky, obviously. Yeah. So Trump doesn't come out of nowhere. But it certainly there certainly seemed to be a period of normalization of abuse against the press that he fostered and sort of encouraged. Yeah. And it's I wonder if it's is it difficult to come back from that? What situation are we left in in a kind of post Trump environment? There's there's always been obviously pre Trump, there's always been ministers or yeah. Prime Minister's presidents who have attacked the media. I think what Trump did was the brazenness of it. I think the system wasn't able to really function for the brazenness of the, the attacks. And then the lack of absolutely any any repercussions. Yeah. Um and how how and and not just saying the words, but how willingly he then took the next step, which was singling out or identifying or, or yeah. drawing attention to um, and I think that's something that is going to be hard to, because it also no, it normalizes that sort of rhetoric, that sort of antagonistic relationship. But I'll always remember, you know, people will see clips of journalists being manhandled or their equipment grabbed off them um, yeah. or, or screenshots of the abuse journalists face, which you, it's, it's unrelenting. Um, but then you'll get to see, then you'll see people's response saying, well, that's not that bad. Yeah, that's not you know. I don't know why they're. It's really not as bad as being in a war or something. Yeah, there's some yeah, yeah. They're not getting punched. minimization. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is that minimization there, and you you see that a lot, and and even the small stuff, you know, that that the sort of people calling journalists journalist coverage a lie. So like you don't need to call it a lie. You may disagree with it. You may point out, you know, other methodological issues with their coverage. Um, but even th- calling things a lie, you know, you're assigning motive to something that, you know, this is not yeah. the same as, you know, you can call, you know, when something is a lie, you call it a lie, but just when it's, when it's media coverage, you don't agree with that's, yeah. that's a very loaded term. So this sort of way of how this, this, this engagement with media outlet, media outlets or actors or media actors is really challenging how, as to how we can bring it back so we see journalism as you know one it's a fundamental part of democracy you can't have democracy without media freedom but also at the same time it's, it's, a, it's a job this yeah. is the thing that i always find really odd is like if you you know if 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 a um a plumber doesn't fix your your sink you don't you don't firebomb his car you know if in the if if a, if a shop doesn't have what you wanted to buy you don't you don't write a you know a death threat online you know so we need to obviously we need to actually look at this 
journalism is is an important guarantor for for democracy but you know there are people behind journalism journalism doesn't just sort of appear out of nowhere yeah there there's individuals that are yeah facing this yeah it's a job like everything else and i think that's something i think we've sort of lost track of um i will say sometimes you know journalists aren't the greatest at being their own advocates on these sort of topics mm-hmm. um you know we need journalists we need editors we need newsrooms to be a lot more proactive with ensuring the safeguarding of their journalists, but also speaking out and also speaking out collectively when there are senior yeah. and high level attacks on journalists. Um, we need that. We need better sort of solidarity again across different uh, parts of the media. Um, but we also need better protection mechanisms, which will, which will have to involve the state getting a lot more involved. That's it for episode 15 of the FFS show. And thanks to our friend Nick Williams for his insights. I thought that was really interesting. Have you enjoyed this week's episode, Sam? I have very much. Uh, Good to take a trip down memory lane to 90s pop music. Yeah, did you enjoy getting me on the ropes? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it was very good. But yeah, I I have melted and I am now a puddle in the ground. So Yeah, you've changed state. I've changed state, yes. Yeah. That's that's the sort of uh, commitment we have for you listeners. That's right. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help us do more podcasting, fact-checking, investigations, and everything else that we do, you can become a member of The Ferret for just £3 a month. You can get in touch with us by email, factcheck at theferret.scot, if you've got anything to say about the podcast or any ideas for things we should be talking about. And Sam, you're great at doing the socials. That's right. So follow us on Twitter at Ferret Scott or Facebook. You can just look up the Ferret um, or Instagram at Ferret.Scott. We've got a ton of different content on each of those. And yeah, it'll be good to see you there. So we will see you next time with another podcast full of misinformation chat, great interviews, and possibly me being asked questions about 90s trivia. (laughs) See you next time. Bye.